Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 978. The fact that you said it would never happen means that right at this moment, there are kids in garages and basements who are working on algorithms and compression techniques that it's going to make it happen. (laughs) This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah! Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I'm revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Mark Rausch. Mark, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I'm always ready for a fun ride and... I try to be as buckled up as possible. (laughs) There you go. I'll try to keep it between the guardrails here today for you. Mark Roush is the co-founder of the Auto Channels Television Network that began in 1987. The AutoChannel.com was launched in 1995. The TAC Online entity is the Internet's largest automotive information resource with more than 2 million pages of content. Today, Mark is the company's executive vice president and co-publisher. He's also a multiple award-winning TV, film writer, producer, and director who's been a broadcasting and marketing executive for over 40 years. Mark is a leading advocate of the alternative fuels and energy who writes and lectures on the issue. He's presented testimony before a congressional meeting on ethanol, was a keynote speaker at the Austri—I should say Australian National Biofuel Symposium, and spoke at the Asia-Pacific Economic Corporation Forum on behalf of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. You are one busy guy, Mark. I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a brief moment to share a little bit more about your career and a very obvious passion for automobiles? Okay. Well, you know, like like all American, good American boys, I grew up uh, admiring and loving cars. My dad had had some interesting cars when I was in high school, especially, and that really got me going. And then I got had my first cars growing up in Brooklyn. and that sort of sort of did it. And then, you know, getting into the advertising arena. So uh, I wouldn't say that my biggest accounts were always car accounts, but we always had car accounts. And so I was doing dealerships or motorcycle dealerships um, in a couple of cases, uh, um, restoration um, clients and things like that. So that always kept me kept me into automobiles and uh, they say that today's people young people don't have the passion for cars like we had and i would say that certainly our fathers and probably grandfathers had the great passion for cars but i grew up probably just like you just like wow look at that car and look at that car oh and look at that car oh but wait oh look at that car you know yes so on yeah, uh, definitely. Most definitely. And I grew up down in San Diego where there's lots of cool cars cruising around. And my dad started my passion with a 1949 MGTC that he had when I was just a little guy, <laughs> five, six years old. So, yeah, I think we share some of the same things. Well, as we continue on your journey, I always like to start by asking my guests for a success quote or a mantra. Some kind of saying that has a good meaning for you. And it's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, Mark, take the wheel. I have three. I'll, I'll try to give them to you quickly. First one is another day, another doorknob. Another one is 
we're not happy till you're not happy. Now, the first one really means another day, another doorknob, meaning that you have to knock on doors, right? That you have to, every day you have to make a connection to somebody. Mm -hmm. The second one, uh, if you think about it, we're not happy till you're not happy is sort of, um, you know, it's a double take, right? But it's really meant to be, don't take things too seriously and always have fun. So it goes back to your opening question about am I ready for fun <laughs> and am I buckled in? Yes. And, and yeah, you have to have a lot of fun. You, you have to love what you're doing. You could get angry. You could, you could get crazy about stuff. But ultimately, through the course of the day, you have to have a lot of laughs and not take yourself too seriously. Absolutely. Very, very important. I know you and I spent quite a bit of time talking before we got together to do this show and you shared a lot of your history. And we talked about that when we were both young men starting off in business, having to knock on a lot of doors back in the old days before cell phones and the Internet and uh, just uh, beating the feet, as they say, and trying to build a business and so forth. But you're right. It's important to stop once in a while and laugh and enjoy. And that's the key thing with cars, yeah, and people in the automotive industries. If you're doing something around your passion, it's a lot easier to have fun every day, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yes. It's it's, it's great when you run into people who spend a, a day as if they were working on a chain gang. It's really depressing. It's depressing to hear. Yes. And um and it's sorry that they it's sad that they have to put themselves through that. You know. Absolutely. Well, my mantra here is inspiring automotive enthusiasts. And I always tell people it's got a double entendre. I interview mm-hmm. inspiring automotive enthusiasts. So together we can inspire automotive enthusiasts to figure out a way to have a career around mm-hmm. their passion for cars. So that's exactly what we're doing today with you. Right. Well, let's go back in time and talk about what instigated your personal passion for cars. Is there a time in your life, that pivotal moment, when you knew you were indeed a car guy? It probably, as I mentioned earlier, my dad had a couple of interesting cars. He had a a 68 Camaro in, in 1968, which in Brooklyn, growing up in Brooklyn, it it was an interesting car to have. I mean, from the standpoint, because it was so new and, and, and exciting, and it caused a lot of attention, um, attention uh, from people, from passerbys and from my friends and so on. So that sort of had, a, had an impact. Then after that, he bought a Lincoln Mark IV. And, uh, and the Lincoln Mark IV, if you recall, changed their grill, their front grill, to a Rolls-Royce style Right, grill. yes. And we grew up in a rather plain, in, in that part of time in, in Brooklyn, we were living uh, in, in one of the Flatbush areas um, off Kings Highway. People, from, people who know Brooklyn will know Kings Highway. And so living on East 19th Street off Kings Highway and having this car that no one, had no one ever saw he might and my dad got it just when it came out and i would drive it my dad was very good about allowing me to drive the cars his camaro and then and then the lincoln and when i would drive that car i don't think i've i don't think i ever drove another car that had that would cause as many people to stop and turn around and to stare um and so 
So I think that that was impactful. And I think it impacted partially, you know, what was happening with me and girls. And so, <laughs> you know, anything that can help you with girls. It's a uh, good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing. So I did that. Um, and then, and then that instigated me into what I wanted as my first car. And for my first car, I wanted a Jaguar Mark Eight, oh. which, as you may know, uh, the same sort of body style as the Rolls Royce Silver Cloud or the Bentley right. S series. It's a big car. Oh, it's a big car, and and I just imagined driving up to my high school. Not that I lived that far away, but you know, I would drive. I would have driven the car there. Driving up to my high school in a Mark Eight would have been unbelievable. <laughs> Yes. So, you know, so that that um, triggered my, my thinking into cars and made me excited. Of course, I couldn't afford one because a, a used Mark 8 in New York in those days was probably somewhere around $1,500. And, you know, 1969. That was a lot of money. money. That was a lot of money. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I didn't buy that. What I did have was $150. So I bought, and this is funny, and you'll like this because of your dad's car, I bought an MGA. Oh, now, nice. an MGA isn't as nice as the uh, the TC, but um, it was a it was a great car, and it still was a great car to have uh, growing up. You know, being in high school in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, much nicer car to drive than a TC. I mean, TCs are a little little chancy in driving, especially once you get over about forty five fifty miles an hour. <laughs> you don't want to be on a freeway in yeah. a TC. It's a handful. Well, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the many roads you've driven down. Now, you've built, built quite a business around the automotive industry, and no doubt that was fraught with some ups and downs, challenges, yeah. and maybe even some failures. So I'd love for you yeah. to share one of those failures or big challenges you face and tell us what that experience taught you. Uh, well, the biggest challenge, uh, I had been in television. Uh, my business partner and I had been in TV and, and in the media for many years, advertising for many years. So when we started the Auto Channel in 87, which was an outgrowth of his a TV station that my partner owned in Sacramento, um, I wouldn't say that there were any great challenges except to say that, oh, we're going to start a television network. So that in <laughs> itself, you know, has, has great challenges. Oh, uh, yes. And, and what came into mind was, well, so if we want to do what we want to do, we're going to need about a billion dollar production budget. So, so that was difficult, but okay, we worked through that and we, we put together a, a nucleus of a network. We started syndicating some television shows. So the challenge, the big challenge was that in 90, uh, 91, late 91, 92, we decided we now needed a partner to really launch this cable network. And so we went to some of the, the big guys, the big cable companies, mm -hmm. and we, we happened to catch the ear and attention of Cox Cable, Comcast Cable, and Continental. And we were working with the three of them to launch the Auto Channel Television Network. And we spent uh, about a year in really re revealing everything, telling him where programming was going to come from, how we were going to do it, our formats, mm -hmm. how we were going to have advertising, marketing, uh, the kinds of deals that we had already set up with uh, with the 
the three years of, of doing a syndicated TV show. And we get a letter one day from uh, Cox that says, um, nah, you know, we, we don't want to do it. We don't think it's going to work. We don't think it's a good idea. Oh. So, you know, I mean, that's fair enough. You know, like somebody could change their mind. Sure. The problem is, is that about six weeks later, we read in the trades that those three cable companies are launching something called Speed Vision. Speed Vision. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And Speed Vision was the auto channel. It was our programming. It was a lot of our or some of our personalities that we put together. It, it included the deals we made with magazine publishers. So they went and they, they just stole everything. They hired a guy who had been at ESPN to front it and to pretend that he had come to them with the idea, but he didn't. Yeah. And um, oh so that, that, that basically, uh, you know, put a bullet in, in our, uh, in our plans. So that was bad. We, the, the biggest problem with that is, is that if you try to launch in cable, you can't do it without a big partner. And although it was supposed to be that the whole one of the whole concepts of cable television was supposed to be that it was going to make TV available for whoever wanted to become a broadcaster and for all kinds of ideas. Right. Well, very quickly that became tied to whoever was that owned the cable system. Sure. And of course, the big guy at that time was TCI. But uh, so we had. We didn't have TCI, but we had the next three big cable systems. Right. Or we thought we did. So when when that happened, basically that ended the the dream of launching a cable television network because without those three and, and TCI, we couldn't do anything. So we, we sort of thought we were dead in the water until we started to hear a lot of rumblings about the internet. And as it happens... My sister and brother-in-law started an ISP in Pennsylvania in 94, early 94. Mm -hmm. And so we, we sort of were able to jump on that. Now, we had, we had been on some of the bulletin boards, uh, you know, computer bulletin boards before that with the auto channel and with some information. But none of that was really website stuff. And anyway, so, so we did that. And we moved along, and we we heard a demonstration of of an audio of a streaming audio program. Mm -hmm. So as soon as we heard that, both Bob Gordon and myself, my 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 partner, we we knew that if you could stream audio, then it meant we could stream video. Yes, and because of our belief in where. TV and computers would would converge. We we believed this in the eighties when we had the TV station, mm -hmm. but we didn't know the name internet. Right, the the word internet wasn't used in those days. Yeah. So, but we said, oh well, this is it. This is that convergence of television and computers. Yeah. So it was now a question of finding someone who had the solution to be able to stream video. Well, we found them. It was an Israeli company um, and uh, a video, um, video, 
Uh, it'll come. It'll come to me in a second. But uh, so it was an Israeli company, and we became their first user. Wow. Um, uh, for, for internet of program. Now they, I mean, they had been doing some demo stuff themselves, but we were the first in terms of actually doing our own programming, right? And doing right. our own yeah. work. Anyway, so going into that, we went to, so now here's our success. So I gave you the bad story. Here's the good story. Yes. <laughs> so we went to one of our key sponsors of our television series of the years that we were syndicating TV um, and it was um, Pennzoil. And so we went to Pennzoil and we made a presentation. And we showed them an internet site or a proposed internet site that would have streaming video. But, it could, but in these days, th these were when we still only had Mosaic browser and people had, if they were lucky, they had 14.4 modems you know right. it was even nine uh, 9.6 baud right slow 9, loads 9 yes yeah. yeah but but we showed them we did a demo live we went, actually went to their office and we, we did an old-fashioned live presentation and but we showed them what streaming video would look like and so on yeah and we made this proposal about them becoming our key sponsor well we we aimed high in terms of how much money we wanted for the sponsorship. And uh, around the room were a lot of people from Pennzoil, which included in those days the, the Jiffy Lou people and so on. And people started to ask questions. And one guy raises his hand and he says, well, how big of an audience do you think you're going to have? And before we could answer it, the vice president of marketing for Pennzoil, who was in our, uh, our side, you know, he was on our side, he said, don't ask that question. And it was like, what do you mean don't ask that question? And, he, and so he said to his coworker, he said, this is a conceptual buy. We're not doing this for numbers. We're doing this because this is where technology is going and we should be there. Yeah. Yes. Now, as you know, because you're an advertising guy, you've spent, you have same, almost the same kind of background I have. Right. Nobody says that in meetings, right? Right, yeah. It's like, what do you mean we don't care about numbers? Everybody right. cares about numbers. Exactly. But he said, we don't care. We're doing this because it's the right thing to do. Yes. So, okay, so we finished the meeting and um, a couple weeks later, I call them to say, so what did you guys decide? And we figured Pennzoil was going to say, yeah, we'll go, but we can't spend that kind of money. You know, could we do something, you know, for about a dollar and a half, right? Sure. So uh, I said, okay, yeah, great, great. I said, well, you know, at what level do you want to come in? And he said, well, the full level, but, you know, just what you proposed. And <laughs> so that was unbelievable. Now, it wasn't as good of a deal as if we would have had Cox Continental and Comcast as our 900-pound uh, uh, gorilla to right. launch the right. TV network, but it was still pretty good. Yeah, wow. So, so funnily enough, we launched um, Speed Vision, launched a TV network in December of 95, and we went on with the Pennzoil-sponsored 
because we had been on we had been on the web with with a mosaic browser but if you remember about january 96 is when the new uh netscape browsers mm-hmm. if, I'm, if that was what it was um and those were fr- the real first dynamic browsers sure and so we came on and we had that and uh, and so we launched in January 96 with the Netscape browser. And by February, a month later, we were doing streaming video. So we were the very first people to ever do streaming wow. video on the Internet in the world for any subject matter. Wow. And, and that set the tone for a lot of things. We wound up then using a couple of different solutions, one called Vivo Active. Uh, and for a while, Vivo Active, which nobody remembers them today, but for a while they were the number one streaming solution. Mm-hmm. And then, and then we switched over to V Extreme as the solution, and we broadcast live the '97 Indy 500 uh, on with video streaming video, and that allowed that we had we did 150 hours from Indianapolis without any problem streaming. Live wow. now, without any problems, meaning that somebody had to have good enough connection, obviously, to watch it. Sure. But in those days, you know, now people were starting to get twenty-eight, eight, and some people even had fifty-six k modems, and occasionally you'd find somebody with an ISDN line. So, uh, but we did that, and what's funny is V Extreme, uh, the president of the company, called me to say. After after we did the indie thing, he said, "Oh, we're going to go up to Washington, and we're going to um, try to get some investment money from Microsoft." Mm-hmm. So, so okay, you know, good good luck, so on and so forth. So he comes back and he calls me and he said, "Well, the meeting went a little different than we expected. They didn't invest in the company; they bought the company." Oh goodness! <laughs> and and they and one of the things that. V Extreme showed them were were the videos that we did with their system, their V Extreme system, from Indy. And and at that point, Microsoft had this thing called Web Theater, which was terrible. It was the worst. Uh, you know, real real audio now had real video at this point. Um, our the Israeli company uh, had were, was progressing, but V Extreme was better than all of that, and their codec was better. So. Um, it just made sense for Microsoft to buy it. And then that became Web Theater 3, and today it's Windows Media. And they're basically using the same codec, uh, or, you know, it's a, a innovate, uh, improvements on it, but it's the same basic codec, my understanding is, uh, that that they got from the Extreme. Wow. So anyway, so they did that. We did some interesting stuff. We did the very first live streaming video broadcasts from SEMA, uh, from the LA Auto Show. We did the very first um, NASCAR race live. We did a um, we did a super truck race from Se- what was called Sears Point. Today it's you know Infineon or something else. And so we and, oh and we did uh, car auctions. We did the very first live video car auctions from. We did one in Las Vegas. We did a few in Palm Springs. We did a few in Newport Beach. And that set a lot of tone for wow. a lot of what became today is 
Yeah. Everybody doing video, right? Wow. Holy cow. Well, kind of leads into my next question, but you kind of answered it multiple ways, and that's an aha moment in your career. Is there one that really stands out for you? But you just mentioned a whole bunch of them there. In this looking for a video solution, prior to finding the Israeli company, I had gone to a teleconference conference and an exhibition in Anaheim. And I'm walking around and I'm looking and there are these people who are, are promoting and showing off their, telecom their video teleconferencing capabilities. And I went up to one guy and I said, here's what we would like to do. And I told him, you know, we want to do streaming video over the internet for our website. Well, the guy started started low, but then he escalated and he started yelling at me, like how stupid I was. It'll never happen. You can't do it. It'll never be. It's a twisted pair copper wire. It can never, ever carry video. You're crazy. You're crazy for even thinking it. <laughs> well, at this point, you know, people around other booths, people walking by, looking, you know, st stopping, like, what's going on, right? Yeah. So <laughs> he finishes, and I said to him, you know, the fact that you said it would never happen means that right at this moment, there are kids in garages and basements who are working on algorithms and compression techniques. To make it happen. That it's going to make it happen. Of course they are. <laughs> yeah, one was called Steve Jobs. There was some Hewlett Packard guys in a garage somewhere. I mean, yeah. yeah, all these things. Yeah, it, I tell you, yeah, amazing story, amazing story. Well, let's talk a little bit about cars here because okay. I want to have a little bit of fun with cars for a moment, although you've had a whole career around them. What was your first really special car and maybe a memory you have about that vehicle? Well, the MGA. MGA, you know, yeah. uh, uh, my dad's cars, of course, as I already said, but the MGA uh, as my car, as as car that I owned, right. um, was very special. And having it in Brooklyn um, and being able to drive it to high school was a big deal because sure. nobody had a car like that. Yeah. It would have been even better if I had the Jaguar, but that's okay. Um, but it was special. And... It also was the first car that I had to start to learn how to sort of fix things. <laughs> well, of course, it's British. Right? <laughs> An old British car. Yep. <laughs> and and so that started. So I'm not a mechanical expert, and there's a lot of things I don't know about the engines of cars and, mm -hmm. and the runnings of cars. But that's the first thing. That, that car uh, taught me some things. Yeah. And, and I started to learn which... Frankly, a, a lot of that is what I was then able to use later in life, more recently, in coming to understand things about alternative fuels. And I'll get into that more if you want me to. But I'll just say that there were some basic things that I learned that then when I would hear the myths about alternative fuels, especially ethanol, and people would tell lies, the oil industry tells lies about ethanol. And I would think back to those days with the MGA, and I would say, no, that's not how a car works, and no, that's not what goes on, and so on. So those kinds of things happened. And then... Um, well, I'm going to ask you about ethanol and your fuel involvement in just a second, but before I do, do you have a seller's remorse story? Is there a car you let go that you wish you had back? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, it sounds you know, like no. It's the answer there. 
<laughs> yeah, later in life, in 84, I bought a Bentley S1, a 56 S1. I imported it from York, England, and I owned it, and it was my everyday car for over 20 years. Oh, my gosh. Um, wow. With the exception that I was also getting uh, cars, uh, test cars, press cars to test drive. So I was driving those quite a bit, but right. my car that I owned was my Bentley S1. Wow. And and it was a great car. I mean, it was great. It it, it fulfilled the high school fantasy that the that I couldn't get from the Jaguar. And it was a great Jaguar. car. It was great. I mean, I loved it. It was beautiful. It required a lot of work, right. a lot of maintenance. Not, I didn't spend that much on it because I was sure. able to do a lot of things myself. But that was a great car. Um, maybe the closest would be regretting that I finally sold that. But to tell you the truth, I had, I, when I sold it, I had enough. It was like, uh, yeah. Yeah. 20 it's, years. It's, that's a long time. That's a long relationship yeah, yeah. with an old British car. <laughs> well, let's talk about current projects and things that excite you. And I'd love for you to tap a little bit here on this involvement you have with alternative well, fuels. Like I think most guys of our age or so on, Again, I grew up very pro-American, very patriotic American, very rah-rah with uh, gasoline and, and oil and American oil and all that stuff. And then about 15 years ago, we started looking, uh, Bob and I, we, we were, the country was going through economic problems, right? So Bob and I, in our conversations, turned to... What could we do? What could two little guys, two guys from, two old guys from Brooklyn do to help the economy of the United States? And we started to look at alternative fuels. Now, we had always reported on alternative fuels as there was information to report on ever since 87, uh, 89 when we were doing our television series. You know, we would periodically have features about some kinds of alternative fuels. And and we, through the 90s, we were invited to a variety of different alternative fuel events and so on in, in the early 2000s. But by about 2005, six, when the country was going through some of its worst of the depression, of the modern depression, and we were looking for something to do and gas prices were getting so high, we started to turn our attention to alternative fuels. And as I mentioned before, that's when a lot of common sense things kicked in. So that when I would hear about somebody saying how um, ethanol, which is alcohol, ethanol sucks water right out of the air and it causes you to get water in your fuel tank and how bad that could be. And I remember thinking, wait a minute. I went on a ski trip once to Vermont with my wife, and we woke up in the morning, and the car wouldn't start from the hotel. We couldn't get from the hotel to the slopes because the car wouldn't start. And I have the car towed into a shop. The guy says, don't worry, we'll take care of everything. You can pick it up later after you finish skiing. So we go skiing. We come back to the shop. And I said, so what happened? And he said, well, you had fuel line freeze. And, and he said, because, you know, it's very cold up here in Vermont. It was minus 17 or something stupid. So so we said, 
So I said, uh, okay, well, what did you do? He said, well, first thing is we brought the car inside. <laughs> so instead of sitting outside at the hotel, we brought it inside. Yep, warmed it up. And then we put some dry gas in it. And I said, I remember saying it, you know, in those uh, dry gas, what's dry gas? And he said to me, it's, I don't think he said ethanol, but he said alcohol, right? But, but ethanol is alcohol. Ethanol is drinkable alcohol. Although for fuel, it, it's, it's denatured, so it's not drinkable. But, but it's alcohol that could be drinkable. And he explained to me that it, it, it sucks up the, the water that's in the fuel line, so you won't have this problem again. So here I am. This is, this is 15 years ago, 14 years ago. And I'm reading these stories about people running around saying that, that ethanol sucks. Does just the air, opposite. Sucks water out of the air. <laughs> yeah. And I said, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and it, in fact, it's exactly what you want in your tank, right? So, so that really got us going. And as I say, so then I, we, we were attending, we were covering from a coverage standpoint, we were covering more and more alternative fuel conferences. And I was really getting the bug and hearing a lot about th a lot of things and meeting a lot of interesting people. I just did more and more and more research about it, put two and two together in a lot of cases, came up with, did a lot of thinking, came up with some of my own uh, theories, which I then um, went and researched further to see if it, if it was possible to be true. And, and so sure enough, I found that this whole thing about um, ethanol sucking water out of the air is completely false. It's absolute nonsense. And the way that that whole thing comes, what happened is, is that the oil industry has created lies about ethanol. They created lies about all of the alternative fuels in order to protect their gasoline and their diesel fuels. And I can't say it any simpler than that, and I'm happy to back that up with a lot of proof if anybody wants to question me on it. But but that that's the, the bottom line. And... And so, but what happened was, is that the definition, uh, alcohol, um, um, ethanol, is hygroscopic. Some people say, say, when I know that people don't know what they're talking about, is they'll say, oh, it's hydroscopic. It's not hydroscopic, it's hygro with a G, hygroscopic, scopic. And what it basically means is, it's a substance that can absorb moisture from its environment. So what the oil industry did was to change the word environment to be air, and they changed absorb to be sucks, or they could use the word absorb. But, but the vision is, is that, mm -hmm. so this is the environment, the air. That's not the environment they mean. So, so I said, for example, if I say to you, or you say to me, hey, Mark, I just moved to this new area. And I'd say, wow, what's the environment like? And you'd say, oh, it's fantastic. It's got trees. We've got parks. We have schools. We have libraries. We've got great shopping. Um, the kids have playgrounds, right? So you're not talking anything about the air. You're talking about your environment. You're saying, oh, and right next door to, right next door to the house is a lake you know, or a pond or something. Okay. So, the, so now take the, here's the vision to look at. If you take a glass and you fill it halfway with some kind of alcohol or ethanol, if it really sucked moisture out of the air, you could put that glass on your kitchen counter, come back 
the next day or a week later, and the glass will be filled, right? Or it'll have more moisture than it had. It doesn't have more moisture. <laughs> it either has the same or less. Right. And and if it has less, it's because of the, obviously because it um, evaporated. But it doesn't do that. So right. another substance that is hygroscopic is cotton, like a cotton ball, rain, regular cotton ball. So you take the cotton mm -hmm. ball and you put that on the kitchen counter also, right next to your glass. And if it if a hygroscopic substance could absorb moisture from the air, then the little cotton ball would be moist when you pick it up. Well, it's not moist. That's okay. Sure. Yeah. So, but you put a little water next to the cotton ball and you come back an hour later or a day later and the cotton ball is wet, soaked. Why? Because that's the environment. The environment is it's on this counter and you put the water up against the cotton ball. And so what it does is it wicks it mm -hmm. up and it absorbs it, right? Sure. If, and now you take the same it, right? glass of alcohol and you put a little water in it. And here's the, here's the funny thing. If you take uh, equal portions of ethanol, 100% ethanol, if you could get it, and water, and you, and let's say it's a half a cup and a half a cup, and you mix the half a cup, the two half cups, and then you come back a little while later, and you see, well, gosh, it didn't, it's not a full cup. And the reason why it's not a full cup is because the alcohol has taken the water molecules into the alcohol molecules, and it has absorbed it in that fashion, and that's how it sucks it up, right? So, but that's not that alcohol ethanol sucks water and moisture out of the air. So again, I say that right. if if you had the problem of a fuel line freeze or moisture in your in your tank or in your in your fuel lines, you actually want to put alcohol in, and you do it either with heat a product called heat, H-E-E-T, or dry gas, and dry gas is a brand name. So that was one thing. The second thing is that I did some thinking on this whole BTU issue because the oil industry has created this myth that gasoline gets better miles because gasoline has higher BTUs than ethanol. Well, it is true mm -hmm. that gasoline has a higher BTU rating than, than ethanol. However, one thing has nothing to do with the other. BTUs is a way to measure temperature, um, uh, how much temperature, how much heat is required to raise the temperature of water. And the reason that that is important or was important is for steam engines. Well, internal combustion engines don't run on steam. They run on combustion. So it has nothing whatsoever to do with the BTU um, content or the so-called energy content. So it's all nonsense. And I did some thinking again, I think, you know, I thought about this and thought about it, ran it through my head, called my partner one morning. Uh, he's in Louisville, Kentucky. And I said, um, this BTU thing is, uh, is a BS. And we talked about it. And he said, you, you think so? I said, I'm telling you it's, and so I went through all of this. And so then I started doing more research. And so sure enough, oh, from as far back as about 110 or 20 years ago, we had scientists who, some of the best scientists in America and the world, said exactly the same thing. And then they had these studies in that congressional studies and with the 
things that they did during the Teddy Roosevelt administration. And they confirmed that BTU meant nothing. And then other people. So mm -hmm. what was funny is I get into this argument with people all the time who tell me, well, I'm a chemist. I know what I'm talking about. I, I have a PhD. And, and, and I get into uh, debates constantly with professors at various really great colleges and people with unbelievable credentials who want to argue with me on this, this BTU thing. And they are completely wrong. And I go through it all. And then they either admit that they were, have been wrong for all these years or I never hear from them again. But the other yes, thing yes. is, and sort of the explanation of this is, that if BTU was really the important thing, then it would mean that you could put diesel into a gasoline car and because diesel has a higher BTU than gasoline and you should get even better mileage. Well, you don't. The car won't run, right? And if you put gasoline right. in a diesel car, you can't say, oh, it'll get 10% fewer miles. You say it gets 100% fewer miles because it won't run. The car won't go. So BTU has nothing to do with it. Right. And as it turns out, if you take an engine, the exact same engine, whatever engine is in your car, and you optimize that engine to run on ethanol, it will deliver equal or better mileage than the, than the engine will get on gasoline. So it has nothing to do with BTU. It has to do with uh, the the length of the piston stroke. It has to do with the timing. It has to do with uh, the injectors, the fuel injectors, and and that's what you have to do to optimize the car. So it has nothing to do with it. Now, on top of all of that, a fellow by the name of William Hale, who was a big deal chemist back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. I mean, you know, really a big guy. He he did a lot of work on this, and he faced the same problem. And he explained in those days that, like, we're, we're, if you go to an automobile company today, a, a maker, an automaker, and you say, okay, if I, if I run the car on E85 or E15, what's going to happen? They're going to say, oh, you're going to get 30, you're going to lose 33% because that's of mileage, because that's the difference between BTUs for gasoline and BTUs for ethanol. And you're going to lose 33%. <clears throat> well, so, Okay. But you know what? If you use E10 or E15, you're not going from 116,000 BTUs for gasoline down to 78,000 BTUs for ethanol because it's mostly gasoline. So really, you're you're only losing eight or nine percent, right? You. But but wait, why is the car maybe getting 15 miles less, 15 percent less? Well, the answer is because they have the car so tuned to run on gasoline that it's not using the benefits of, of the combustion and the thermal, the, the, the higher thermal characteristics, the better thermal characteristics of ethanol. So it gets less. The other mm -hmm. thing is that gasoline doesn't burn cleanly. And we know that because that's where all the junk that forms in your engine comes from. That's right. That's all the bad the bad uh, um, emissions and all the junk that all the gunk that gets formed, that's from it not burning cleanly. If you were running gasoline, the engine would run clean, and your engine would be clean because of the better better burn of of ethanol. So when you actually break it down, you lose about twenty five percent of thermal efficiency in gasoline. 
So if you were only looking at BTUs, the thermal efficiency of gasoline in an internal combustion engine comes down to about 86,000 BTUs compared to 78,000 BTUs for ethanol. So again, that's only about 7 or 8%, not 33%. So the nonsense that mm -hmm. you're going to lose 33% is nonsense because you're not dealing with, with the BTU being this much higher than that. So you, so you can look at it scientifically. I hope I haven't lost you, and I hope I've explained it properly. Um, <laughs> and I hope anybody who listens to this can follow it. But anyway, but but it really has nothing to do with one another. So I started mm. arguing this and writing about this quite a bit. And naturally, it caught a lot of attention because there were all these people who have heard for for only 50 years that the difference between the BTUs in gasoline and ethanol is so much greater that that's why it's better. But it has nothing to do with it. It has to do with engine optimization. Wow. Well, you have given us a massive amount of information to think about here. Holy <laughs> cow. Well, let's move. That's okay. Very, very interesting. Well, here's a very introspective question for you, Mark. If Mark was a car, what kind of car would he be and why? I'd be my Bentley S1. Uh, a little old. <laughs> there you go. Uh, um, sometimes it needs some maintenance. It, it, well, it's a little yeah. class. And a little class. But, you know, I have to tell you that the best thing about the Bentley was it had the image of a $100,000 car, and I only paid $7,000 for it. Oh, yeah. Well, so, we'll keep that a So, secret. you know, when I had that and I drove that down <laughs> the street nice. and stuff, and people would say, oh, man, oh, what did that cost you? And it was like far less <laughs> than you think. <laughs> Oh, very cool. Well, Mark, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. Hey, Cars Yeah listeners, this is Mark Green. I've been using Covercraft covers to protect my cars and motorcycles since I was in high school, way back in 1975. But Covercraft has much more to offer than just vehicle covers. This time of year is very hard on your vehicle's interiors. Rain, snow, dirt, and mud gets into the carpet and the seats, grinding away and destroying the original materials. It's important to preserve and protect your special ride with cover craft floor mats and seat covers. That's what I do. They offer a wide variety of styles, colors, and materials, all designed to fit like a glove. They're easy to install and provide for anchor points and airbags for safety and a perfect fit. Protecting your vehicle adds value when you go to sell it, too. Simply go to Covercraft.com and order the style and color you like best, and boom, you're set. You'll thank me, and your vehicle will thank you as well. That's Covercraft.com, and tell them Mark at Cars Yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. What's every automotive enthusiast's dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage 
and the Fidel structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garage is built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. Okay, Mark, we are back and we're entering the last lap. I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Don't buy a car at night uh, or in the rain. Or in the rain. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, and at yes. night because you can't see the imperfection. You can't see things, right? Yeah. And so they there would say go. that. So Perfect I think that advice. probably is the best. I think that's a good one. Now, would you share one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your many successes over the years? Hard work. Just just long hours yeah. and hard work. <laughs> and uh, and I would say that that contributed not only to my successes, but my failures. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, work hard. That's for sure. My dad used to tell me, you may not be as smart as the next guy, but you can always outwork him if you just work hard enough. So. Now, how about a resource? There's lots of great resources these days, but is there one you'd like to share? You know, from a general standpoint, in the old days, I would have said the library. We used to go, Bob and I used to say, uh, this back in the 80s, uh, the library, the public library is our secret source yes. for things. Yeah. Because it's so underused, you know, it's it, it, people, it's amazing, right? Yes. So now today we have, we have, everybody has a personal library in the house and it's called the internet. Right. Well, I have to tell you that from the kind of research that I do and for example, with alternative fuels and so on, that people really use the internet as little as they used the public libraries. And to think that it's everything you need to know is right there at your fingertips and people don't research it. Yeah, yeah. And they don't do enough research. So I, so as a general sense, I think the big tool, is, the, the big thing I would say is libraries and search on the internet. Libraries are massively underused. And today you can download books from the library. You never even have to go there. You can download audiobooks. You can get movies from there. And you know what? Tax dollars pay for it. So essentially it's all free or subsidized. Yep. I know nothing's free, but uh, yeah, the libraries. My wife gets books from the library all the time. It's an amazing resource. Never has to buy a book. And if they don't have a book you want, you just ask them to get it. And you know what? They'll get it for you. So, yeah, people need to use the library more. Now, if you could, if I could arrange for you to have a drink with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, who would it be? Uh, probably uh, Wagner, um, the old president, uh, president from 10, 12 years, uh, from 2008. Uh, of GM. Oh, I was going to say like, the president. I don't remember President Wagner of the United States. Oh, yeah, no, <laughs> GM, uh, GM. Okay, <laughs> I, I think probably him because I'd like to get his take on on what he thought of this whole nonsense of getting him fired and bringing in uh, then the a guy who had been on the board of directors of Exxon. Yeah. And and then bringing in Mary and things like that. A lot of politics okay. going on there. I have a feeling. But yeah. uh, that could make for a whole nother show. Now, if I get a range, uh, let me ask this question again. How about a book? Is there a book that you think our listeners should read? Uh, and excuse me for being so mundane about ethanol, about alternative fuels. I would say this book. It's called The Forbidden Fuel by uh, Bill 
Kavarik and Hal Burnton. And it's, it's an incredible book that, uh, it's one of the books that I've used as a resource and, and I've gotten to know Bill Kavarik uh, fairly well over the years. But it's a great place to start to, to read uh, stuff about this whole alternative fuel thing and about what has gone on for the past 150 years, Very cool. 160 years. I'm glad you recommended that. It's the first time that book's been recommended. And I'll remind our listeners you can find links to all these great resources that Mark has recommended on his Cars yeah show notes page. You just go there. Type in Mark, that's Mark with a C versus my Mark, which is a K, M-A-R-C, and then Roush, R-A-U-C-H. All right, we're up to the checkered flag, Mark, and this last question can be a bit of a doozy. I'm going to make you get rid of all your cars, and you can only have one very cool collector car in your garage, but I'm going to buy it. So you want that million-dollar or multi-million-dollar car? No problem today. I'm writing the check. What's it going to be? Cadillac Alante. What? <laughs> in um, in about 89, Cadillac gave me an Elante to drive for a month. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, they had that car only for a couple of years yes. and they discontinued it. It was reminiscent of when my dad had the, the Lincoln Mark IV. Oh, okay. In terms of people uh, uh, drawing attention. People, I was living in San Diego at the time. And... People would follow me on the highway, get off my exit, and then flag me down to ask me about the car. It was a beautiful car. It was styled by Bertoni, maybe, I'm I'm thinking. And it was a convertible. It had problems uh, with the the top, but it was – but if you got it closed and you got it open, then it was great. It was beautiful. (laughs) It drove – you know, it, it basically drove like it had the power of a Corvette. So it had the performance of a Corvette, but the comfort and luxury of a Cadillac. And it really was a beautiful looking car. And it had, at that time, um, all the latest digital displays and right. stuff like that that were really beautiful. I loved that car. I thought it was so fantastic. I, I just absolutely love driving it. And then, of course, for being in Southern California, I, I thought it was just the, the greatest thing. Wow. So I would say that, but I, I don't know if you could find it. Well, you, you, you're taking it easy on me today. That shouldn't be too terribly difficult. But, uh, yeah, very special car. My understanding was uh, GM probably lost money on every one of those with the bodies being made overseas and having to be shipped back and, and put together here. But Beautifully styled cars, uh, nice-looking cars, very unique and different. So, yeah, you did throw me for a loop. Well, Mark, (laughs) you've taken me on a great ride today. I've really enjoyed getting to know you better, and I want to thank you for sharing your automotive journey with the Cars Yacht listeners and with me. Would you offer us one parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Cadillac? Everything in excess. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. You heard it here. Everything in excess. What's the best way for our <laughs> listeners to follow along with you and learn more about what you're doing? Well, because the website is theautochannel.com, www.theautochannel.com. Our TV, our 24-hour TV network is available, Amazon Fire, Roku, a couple of other of those kinds of streaming network things, and YouTube. We have about 6,000 videos on YouTube. That's all? And, and so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, again, listeners, I'll make sure I put links to everything 
on Mark's show notes page. Just go to carsyeah.com, type in Mark with a C, Roush, R-A-U-C-H, and I will put links to all those sites. I would encourage you to check out what he's been up to. You probably already have. He's been around forever. Uh, really one of the beginners in this whole concept of automotive, good, cool video online. So we thank you for that. And I thank you for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your automotive experiences with me and the Cars yeah audience. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thank you. You're welcome. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people. But what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. member, Finra Sipic. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Yeah!